0: It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in, because the runout starts now.
1: Chris, I've got a story for you. Oh, really? (laughs) I flew on a plane last week Mm -hmm. out to Tahoe, and I had a first experience that I've never had before where I was flying down into Phoenix. I flew from Vale to Phoenix and I was flying into the teeth of a storm and on one of these like little, like, you know, little planes with like just two rows on either side of the aisle. Right. And the winds were so high and the turbulence was just so bad. And I was just throwing the plane around and we circled around Phoenix for like five times. And, I just got so sick, and I thought I was going to be okay, but then the girl in the aisle next to me started puking, and sure enough, I started puking too. So yeah, I never puked on a plane before, but I fully like vomited my brains out.
0: Did you get into the barf bag? Oh yeah. Were you fast enough? I used
1: two barf bags. I nice. went through two barf bags. Was
0: anybody else? Did it start a chain reaction? Because I've whole, seen that. The whole
1: plane was puking. Right. The, was like was up and down the aisle. It was like everyone was puking. Gnar, the smell must have been gnar. The weirdest thing about this situation is after I like got done with like vomit number one, I like rolled up the bag and like put it on the floor, and the dude in the seat behind me tapped me on the shoulder and offered his personal water bottle, like a Ooh. clean canteen, like metal water bottle, not like a you know, just like his personal thing. After I just done gotten done vomiting.
0: That's the most beautiful thing that's happened to you in years. Is it? Is it yes. or is that guy just so stupid? <laughs> no. No, I've, you have to look at it as like a complete an utter event of generosity. It was. Sir. No, it was. I yeah. was
1: I was I was completely humbled by this display of, of common humanity and I was so humbled by it that of course I refused you, his water bottle because I've never again. anyway. I would never sully his his his, his, <laughs> his water bottle with my puke mouth. But dude, yeah, it was so heinous. I, and I felt like super sick after that. And I've since heard from a few people who this has happened to, who have all said that after you get motion sickness of that kind once, it kind of like, it fucks, it fucks them for You're, life. Like oh, right. it, they're like, they get motion sick really easily. So I don't know if that's true for me or not, but have you ever puked on a plane, Chris?
0: No, but I've been puked on. Mm. I was I was on a plane. I think I was coming back from Europe la da like, oh, I was coming back from Europe. <laughs> <laughs> As you will. Um, and there was this uh, Italian teenager next to me, girl, who was coming. You know, we chatted over the flight. She was, like, an exchange student or something like that. And, yeah, we started circling Chicago, I think. And sure enough, she just, like, all of a sudden just... And she grabbed the bag, but, like, it was, like, a couple inches away still. <laughs> and so it, like, blew all over my leg. <laughs> And it's surprising that I didn't puke because, you know, that's usually, again, like a chain reaction. You get right. a good whiff of it. But she was, like, mortified. Like, she got it under control. She, she like, oh, you I know, can't imagine. emptied her stomach. And she was just mortified that she barfed on me. And I had come from, like, a couple months living in the dirt, you know, in, like, Sayus or something like that. So I was like, fuck, I don't really care. Yeah. Like, I was, like, seriously... It doesn't matter. Like, I don't care that you puked on my leg. It's fine. I'll wipe it off. We're good. But yeah, it was... I mean, she was kind of a, you know, sort of a fashionista sort of Italian. Yeah,
1: she's wearing Gucci. Yeah, yeah. She's,
0: you know, ready for her premiere in in the United States. Like, (laughs) that was it. But I tried to, like, comfort her as much as I could. Um, And then there was another time where I got on a plane in Spain and was so fucking hungover that I... Definitely did all the breathing exercises to refrain from puking, mm-hmm. um, but managed to manage to keep all that spit in yeah. my mouth that starts to well up and all those things. So,
1: well, there's no one sitting next to me, which because which was great because I was yeah. like fully using both. Right, seats. you know, right. I was like on all fours, just like ah.
0: Plus, you need you usually get the one barf bag. I <laughs> yeah. needed this. No, seat. I needed to. Yeah.
1: yeah, so that was also good. <laughs> Um, anyway well what there's this nothing to do there's, <laughs> well there's nothing there's nothing worse uh by the way than um than puking on a plane in an era of of mask restrictions on the plane because right. then of course you have to like smell your puke breath and for the rest of the flight <laughs> um what are we talking about i don't today? know Sorry. we're gonna talk about uh what it's like to go to a crag that's super crowded versus a crag that is super empty?
0: Well, this topic was in my head because I had two very disparate experiences this year uh, in the last couple months of going to a cliff completely by myself, not only not a climbing partner, but no other climbers in sight. And in fact, deep in the desert where in the wintertime, there's no other people like you can from this clip, you can see the road, and honestly, a car comes by like every hour, and it's you know quite a ways away, so you sort of vaguely hear it go by, and then it's just dead silent. And uh, I was mini tractioning cracks, you know, aiding, cli- aid climbing them, and then mini tractioning them, or, or I had a rope in place from a route that I put up last year versus. Going to Shelf Road, which is a popular sport climbing area here in Colorado. I've heard on, of it. Yes, you have, but our listeners may have not. <laughs> that is uh, is actually really it, it just shines in the moderate range from like five nine to five eleven. Like, mm-hmm. and you know, I know five eleven is like at the top end of moderate, but with sport climbing, it certainly is in the moderate level. Yeah. And so it's like, it's a magnet and it was president's day weekend. So, and it was gorgeous, like too hot actually in the middle of February. So I had these two very like unusually, you know, like I said, desperate experiences, desperate and disparate Mm -hmm. experiences between these two things. And it got me thinking about like the mythology around this idea that I think most people sort of complain about crowds Mm -hmm. at their cliffs which implies that the ultimate experience is to be isolated and by yourself if not alone as i was but or with just you and your partner on some climb you know Mm -hmm. so you don't have to mess with other people and i think that at least within the mythology of climbing like the idea that a cliff is just you know crowded with people and there's dogs and there's shit going on and everybody's gabbing and there's fucking music and all that shit is like a bad experience right And yet, I don't think a lot of climbers that I know would actually prefer what I was up to. I know this because they don't do it.
1: Right. There's a reason it's empty.
0: There's a reason there's nobody there. There's a reason you don't go climbing by yourself. And it's not just the sort of like mechanics of self-belay. Right. But don't you think that that's like this idea and climbing, like that's the peak experience? It is interesting. There is like this
1: um, kind of uh dishonesty that we have about um our our like the common critique of crowds at crags where we're just like oh this sucks there's all these people here but yeah it is true that most of the time if there's a lot of people somewhere it's because probably the climbing's good Mm -hmm. and if the people are there and they're climbers they're probably going to be cool for the most part and they're going to be interesting people or they're going to be your close friends and you're going to be hanging out, and it's going to feel like a fun time. But yeah, when you're off in the middle of nowhere, the solitary wilderness experience—it's something that you could like kind of mythologize and and romanticize, and you know, give the the uh, Thoreau treatment to, yeah, totally, um,
0: or the, or the uh, Barefoot Charles treatment, <laughs> however, uh, <laughs> however it works out. <laughs>
1: But uh, do you actually want that? And I, I think you're right that a lot of people would say no. Actually, I don't want that.
0: The thing is, is like I, you know, we talk about Indian Creek a lot on both my shows because I climb there forever, and I still climb there. And but I, but a lot of times, I my my initial reaction when my partner says, "Hey, let's go to the creek this weekend." Because she loves it still. And I my initial reaction is always just like, yeah, all right. Yeah, let's go down there, like it's gonna be crowded. There's gonna be all these fucking jackasses like, you know, just being jackasses and and then she always points out in that instance, like, you always have a good time when we actually go. Mm -hmm. And that's the funny thing is I always like bitch about it, but then when I get there I always have a good time. And even if it's super crowded, it's you know, I'm chatting with I'm like, I can be outgoing and I can sort of be both people. Mm-hmm. Because I love going to the I love going to the desert and being by myself. Mm-hmm. But once I'm at the cliff and of course everybody's like, oh NormaCast, blah, blah, blah. Like I have a great time. And I'm not like sitting there in my inner sort of world grumbling about it. Mm-hmm. And she's right. I have a good time. I enjoy myself. It's fine. I usually, you know, you just like have to wait a little bit to do a climb, maybe, or something like that. But it's just funny because most of my inner reaction is to say, Yeah, it's going to be. Even going to the shelf, I was like, Oh, fuck, it's President's Day. Like, that's ah, going to be fucked. That was my whole, like, all the way there. I'm just like, Ah, it's going to be. You're grumpy. Fucked. I was grumpy. It not mean no parking. It doesn't mean any routes and stuff. And we had a great weekend. Right. And we chatted with a bunch of people, and not everybody was great. Yeah. There was a lot of fucking douchebags running around, but there was also a lot of great people that tell, made up tell for it. Tell me more. Yeah.
1: Tell so. me more about those douchebags.
0: <laughs> we love the douchebags. Well, the thing about shelf is that you can, if you climb like 12A, you're sort of the cock of the walk. Mm-hmm. You, you can kind of like, you can kind of ride that pretty hard there. Mm-hmm. At most of the cliffs, there's one area called the gym where
1: I put my pants on one leg at a time, but when yeah. I do, I climb 12A <laughs> at shelf. <laughs>
0: exactly. And so as As an observer, and this is gonna like mark me as like the person it's i I'm, I'm like recording video like I'm the guy who you don't want to say shit around because i'll I'll bring it back to my podcast, but I'm always kind of like listening to the culture at the cliff, yeah, and uh there's always at least one or two dudes that are just like just overdoing it whether it's whether it's shirts off climbing or it or just talking about what they've done before or. Or talking loud enough that like you 're not just in your group of friends, but everybody can hear it it's just like there's always a couple, and uh, you don 't like
1: shirts off climbing
0: no shirts off is fine, but it 's just like a combination of it all It's the attitude with the yeah, shirt yeah, the attitude yeah there's just always a couple yeah. and you're like you know they're just kind of mucking up the scene, yes, and the thing is is it's it's interesting because I'm like, well, who is the audience? Because, like, we were hanging out with the Who are with, you auditioning for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, who, 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 but there are, there's probably, there's probably people who are receptive to that. Uh-huh. And that's, that's actually was more my thought. I was like, who's, who's the audience that this is effective communication for? Because it's not me. Mm-hmm. And, and we happen to like be climbing with a, a, a group of people with a couple women who are fucking cranking. Mm hmm. I was like, it's not for them mm-hmm. because they don't. They're they're also like rolling. They're the climbing like you, four sir. times harder. Yeah. The- <laughs> so I was like, I don't know where it's getting them, but the thing that occurred to me in, in shelf is that you know we talk about the gym to crag thing, but it was more than the gym to crag. It was like, like the social bar scene to crag, like all the things that you would see going on with sort of young people at a at a bar, like you know, with some. A little bit of dance music and some beer flowing, and like a normal like hangout bar was happening at this cliff. Like that was more like what had been transported to the climbing area, mm-hmm. um, including the the booze. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was kind of my observation. Like this is even more than just gym to crag. This is like social urban social scene at your corner pub. Oh, that's interesting. At the crag, which is where that guy fits in. Right, right, because there's that guy at the bar too. Right, you know what oh, I mean.
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: And there's some women who are receptive to that at the bar as well. Huh. I don't know. It was it was just like me observing. Okay. But so, it was also fun. It was super yeah. fun. No,
1: that sounds super fun. I mean, and when it's I'm like, by
0: myself, I talk to myself, and that's fucked up, and so that's <laughs> weird too. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're just like I'm having a good time. Yeah. I'm having a good time. Well, let's place another cam. I'm having a good time. <laughs> Exactly. Like, who's that psycho muttering to himself 100 feet up the wall? Exactly. <laughs> I'm having a good time out here. I'm having a good time. This is fun, too. <laughs> my dad would be proud of me.
0: Exactly. So yeah. I guess I guess my... Uh, unless you have some observations about that.
1: Well, I, I, I guess I, I'm curious to hear... I mean, I feel like this could turn into a therapy session right. for you because you... You have, um, these lingering perceptions about what you think is like a cool climbing experience that it sounds like you're questioning that you don't think you really necessarily agree with anymore, or maybe you're questioning like how strongly you're committed to them. And I think that's like a valuable conversation to have with yourself. Like, especially, especially in a sport like climbing where there's so many different ways to interact with it. Sure. You know, I had a conversation with myself where I was like, do I really want to ice climb every year? I don't I actually don't really want to ice climb. I, I, I like I like it, it's fun, like I'll happily pick my way up a ice flow or whatever. But do I need to like get psyched to go ice climbing or or not? And at some point I was like, I don't really want to do that. Never I'd rather that. I'd rather like go skiing. I'd rather go climb in the gym. I'd rather you know, wait for a sunny day and climb outside. And I wanted to identify with being the all-arounder who can do everything at a high level, you know, who could like be the ice climber, it could be the alpine climber, it could do the, you know, sport climbing, whatever. That was like this thing that had kind of been imposed on me as, uh, I don't know, through media or I'm not sure where it comes from, but just it was just that idea that, you could do it all really well. And that seemed appealing. Right. And then it was like, no, I don't need to do it all really well. I can just do the things that I want to do. And I think that's like a healthy conversation for people to have, especially like newer climbers who aren't really sure what their identities as climbers are going to be because they're like, Oh, I'm just a gym climber now, but I aspire to be the Patagonian alpinist or something like that. And maybe they will or maybe they won't and they'll just be the gym climber and that's okay you can do that like you don't have to do it all and you can you can find comfort in that identity and that's what's great about our sport is like having that space to do to do it all and not feeling like you have to do it all and i mean yeah like a week apart you went from this like solitary experience in out in the desert where there was no one there. And like one car would come by once a day and you're just up there muttering to yourself and working through your,
0: <laughs> like literally you're working through oh, well, your I, that's your own
1: actually issues. Not joking. Yeah. I'm
0: definitely muttering.
1: <laughs> and, uh, and that was fun, you know, but like fun in like a different way. Right. And then you can like go to shelf road and be in the mix and like, you know, no, yeah. You can grumble about the crowds and the, in the, shirts off uh beanies on douchebags in the cigs and the cigs in the bar scene and because and that was the
0: thing that that triggered my bar thing is because there was like plenty of people smoking cigs yeah like just straight weird. up marlboros not even rollies like just like straight up packs of cigs it, it is and weird. that's when i was like, like okay we're we just we're just out at in denver right now we're just out
1: yeah, I mean, like it, if you it, if you go to an average sport crag, it's like hard to call. Even even though the people there could be like the fittest people in the world, but there could they, it's hard to like see that because they're all just like hanging out. Like they climb like two times a yeah. day. Like they actually tie in like three times a day, and then the rest of the day they're just like getting high and drinking beer.
0: Yeah, fully. That was the yeah. scene too. Like cracking beers. Yeah. it was like nine ten a.m. Like we're getting those beers out yeah so it it's funny because then I also like you know I did feel separate from that mm-hmm. because I'm old and like you know I'm not that, that guy back in the day, yeah but it's it's good for me because i I have to like I do these i, I my gears sort of work themselves loose, and I'm like, okay, this is a scene, what's truly good about it, what's truly kind of like annoying me about it and you know, it, it it was just like, like I said, it was like this cool dichotomy between the two. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and I wanted to ask you, like, you know, we have this local climbing scene here and we mutter about the fucking crowds and no parking and all that sort of thing.
1: How it's changed. And
0: how it's changed and yeah. blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, right now you can go out to Rifle during the week and literally there's nobody there. Right. And is that like, wh- like what's your sweet spot? What What is your sweet spot, do you think? Like for me, I mean honestly this 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 the crowdedness of the shelf road on this weekend was a little much for me, mm-hmm. and I was like it, it was cool, and I had a great time, and I met tons of great people, and it was fun. But there were times where I was like, it was like a party where everybody's in the kitchen, right, and everybody starts talking louder because the person next to them is talking louder, which makes the person next to them talk louder, and all of a sudden like it's this cacophony. It like there were times where it felt like that, and it and it to me that felt a little fucked up and dangerous because there was no communication. Oh, when you Oh yeah, climbing. I hate that. And that, that's, that, that was that's, a little much.
1: That yeah, I don't like that. I wouldn't have liked that scene. No, I don't like I don't like it when it gets so loud right. and people are so distracted that they're not like paying attention to the Blaine and they're. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, like, whatever. I've done plenty of drinking at the Crags, but yeah, like, totally. when the people who are like popping beers at like
0: 11 a.m. or whatever, noon, it's still, I don't know. So, what's it's your, still sp- a little too much for me. What's your sweet spot? Cause you're not really a desert wanderer either.
1: I'm not. No, that's, that's a good point. I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like smaller, a, a smaller crowd and, you know, I can handle a bigger scene, but I don't have as much fun. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I'll just like not—I'll choose not to go to Shelf Road on Presidents' Day weekend, right? Um, or I'll—I'll I'll just know that that won't be like as much fun as going somewhere else, mm-hmm. um, because it will be crowded, and that's fine. But it's just like I don't know—that wouldn't be as much fun for me,
0: right? So early season is the dream boat, right? Yeah, to know, where it's like mostly people you know Mm -hmm. nodding hey what's up
1: i don't even mind like climbing around people i don't know right that's okay i actually prefer that too because sometimes i don't want to like just like talk and like hang out all day right just like go climbing for a few hours especially now too where like time is so limited Mm -hmm. um but yeah i don't know i think uh I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know how to define what it is, what my sweet spot is with, like, the crowd scene. But it's, like, a really relevant question as climbing becomes so popular Mm -hmm. and crowded. And I don't know. I feel like Rifle's an interesting place just because um, it's sort of self-regulating with crowds. Like, there's only so much parking and there's only so... (laughs) many routes and they're what all are like, like
0: similar crags though like rumney isn't that like kind of a Rumney's super
1: crowded now right. like i climbed in rumney in college because i was i went to school right. in the northeast and i lived in new hampshire for a while and it was like it's it's totally different today than it is now sure. I, I would not enjoy myself going to rumney in general like a, especially but it's a pretty a
0: tight i've never been there it's like a I mean, it's pretty focused, tight spot or is there like, is it all spread out?
1: It's all spread out, but there's just so, it's the only sport crag in the Northeast. It's like really good and it gets a lot of, it just is, it seems like it's like a scene now. So yeah, I don't know. And it is hard too. Like that's the other thing is with getting older is that you remember, you know, crags as being a certain way Yeah. and, uh, so you're inevitably judging the current moment mm-hmm. based on a conception that you had, like when there were fewer climbing gyms and, you know, fewer climbers. Right. Um, and, you know, of course, memory like has this weird way of
0: G- gauzing it. Yeah. Gauzing yeah. it. and like, Yeah. You're, it's like, oh, it was so perfect. Yeah. Everything but it probably was wasn't.
1: You're probably miserable. Yeah.
0: Totally. Well, <laughs> Rifle's always been miserable. Like from the very, <laughs> almost the beginning. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean it, it, I think the thing that kind of like the the thing I check in my own head and also I find annoying with other people is is the like vocal open complaining once you're there. You know, it it just goes back to my 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 long-standing adage is that like if you want to do something about the crowds, then go home and right. reduce the crowd by one. Right. Because if you're going to come here and fucking bitch and talk about how somehow you are more deserving of this space than other people, whether it's cause you were back here in the back of the day or because you were camped here longer or it's, you know, I I mean, I've heard it all. Like yeah. um, we were, you know, we thought today would be the day when no one would be here kind of thing. Cause we understand the cycles of how this crag works and shit. It's like all that stuff. Like, get it out of your mouth while you're still in your car or walking up the trail after that, like go fuck yourself. I don't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. And it's something I've, you know, even in my head, I like check it. I'm like, this is fine. It's good. Nobody's really in my way. We can do what we want. It's fine. It's fun. Like that, that's kind of like a a thing that I'm working on with myself, but don't fucking open your mouth about the crowds Mm -hmm. when you are there. Because go go leave goodbye good day yeah. to you sir yeah like you yeah, obviously that's... are not enjoying yourself so go play frisbee golf or some fucking inane stupid thing like that you know right. like <laughs> yeah no although the totally frisbee right. golf course is probably crowded too because it's beautiful out <laughs>
1: right yeah uh, we were just in Joe's Valley last week mm-hmm. and um that place has changed a lot it, we were there for spring break right. and it was. Packed.
0: I mean, spring break's a tough time. Yeah, to be spring out rock break's a tough time for us us curmudgeons. Yep, it's like we need a curmudgeon support group for spring break.
1: We need to just like go do the thing that we hate doing, which is like seeing our parents. Like, you know, <laughs> over, during the peak climbing uh, breaks. Yeah, like I, I'm just gonna in the future I'll just like schedule like the one annual trip I need to do to go see my mom or something. <sighs>
0: <laughs> well we went down to the same place that i was muttering to myself and fuck there was nobody there but we weren't climbing right so that, that place is so remote that my actual my my problem now is like getting someone to go there to blame me yeah <laughs> it's like everybody wants to go where their friends are they don't want to go out into the desert with some washed up has-been <laughs> who mutters to himself when nobody's around
1: Well, if you need a never was to belay you, I'm happy to do it. (laughs) Freddie Wilkinson and Renan Ozturk are co-directors of a new film called The Sanctity of Space, a story about how a single photo by Bradford Washburn sparked the idea of attempting an audacious alpine traverse. We are here with a return guest, uh, Freddie Wilkinson, brilliant writer, alpinist, climber, and we're here also for the first time with a guy who I admire a lot, Renan Osterk, uh, amazing filmmaker, climber. So thanks for being here, guys. We're going to talk about your new film that is finally here after decades in the making, literally, The Sanctity of Space. I want to tee the film up uh, quickly. You guys can tell us the specifics of it, but basically it's a film that's roughly about a, a, an ascent that you you both completed in Alaska called The Tooth Traverse of the Moose's Tooth Massif. It's about that, but it's also a really a rich story that goes into history about photography, uh, Bradford Washburn, and lots of themes. It's it's really a rich film. It's really long. It's an hour and 40 minutes or so, and just amazing piece of work that We really enjoyed Uh, Chris and I got to see an advanced screener of it. So we're psyched to have you guys and and talk about film. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Obviously we look up to you guys a lot and carrying, carrying the torch for the climate community. So it means a lot for you guys to take the time to, to watch the film and um, share it on this platform as, as well.
0: So I, I kind of was wondering if someone could talk a little bit about evolution from climb this idea this idea that freddie had from looking at a photo to you know at what point in the process did you guys start to realize you were making a film yeah there was some point at which it converted over to a project of filming and that plays a a large role i think in the themes of the movie itself so um tell, tell me a little bit about the evolution of this is a dream to this is an art project
3: Actually, uh, it wasn't ten years from when I had the I saw the photo and had the idea of doing the climb. It was ten years from when we did the climb. So we're actually like talking like seventeen years or sixteen years uh, from when I first saw the photo. All told, so a long process to be sure. The you know the story of the climb. Um, I probably saw the photo in two thousand five 2006 when I was guiding up in Alaska and uh you know that climb took five years basically to do and Colin Haley and I I think applied for a grant together just like kind of said what the heck and didn't get it to try the tooth traverse I ended up talking with Renan and Zach about it and they tried it in 2009 and we ended up finally succeeding as a as a between Renan and I in 2012, when did it evolve from being a climb to, uh, you know, a serious creative filmmaking endeavor? I think it really, really started after uh, we had done the climb. We were certainly really jazzed about documenting the climb, you know, as we show in the movie, but it wasn't really after we had kind of done the climb and gotten that monkey off our backs that we started to really appreciate how, you know, Alaska had inspired us and and Brad Washburn as well, and sort of think about his legacy of photography and all those other things that the film's about.
1: Yeah, just to pick up on what you're saying, Freddie, there is this um, really interesting lineage that you guys captured in this film that begins with Washburn and, and leads up to your journey of both climbing the Tooth Traverse and also documenting the the story in a film. And I was really struck by that, just how powerful that lineage is that, that you guys capture in this piece, because... If you're just living in the moment, you kind of think that storytelling in climbing or just art art and climbing don't necessarily go together or it feels like forced or something. But there's this striking history that, you know, dates back decades of where creating beautiful art photos or beautiful high quality cinematography intersects with hardcore alpinism. And so it felt very natural. It wasn't like a forced storyline it wasn't like bradford washburn was just kind of wedged in there to like give it some kind of like historical gravitas or something but i'd love to like just ask Renan specifically about this question because it seems like kind of right at this moment renan um when you're you're sinking your teeth so to speak into the tooth traverse you're kind of at this stage in your career where you're a budding filmmaker you just you know, started to get sponsored as a, as an athlete. And it, w- it was like kind of an uneasy, you know, way to approach the sport of like balancing things like, you know, having a pure experience with being able to document it and also just focus on the climbing. And it sounded like that created a rift between you and Zach. And so maybe you could just speak to uh your, like, take us back to that time in your life and, you know, kind of what was going through your head and your approach to, to climbing and, and becoming a filmmaker?
2: Yeah, no, that's a good, good question. And it, it, it tols, totally ties in what Caloose was asking. And I think driving at, and I, I think both, both for, for Freddie and myself, are both of our careers were going in that direction of being professional climbers and understanding what that meant. And really it was all about telling stories and how well you could come back with things to share, which is sort of what the ethos of the film is about. And in the end is is what Washburn told us. And it was an interesting case study because Zach, who is a total dark horse, amazing climber, you guys know really well from your own communities. He was, he was like a way better climber than us. And um, he had, he had like grown up and climbed with with Micah Dash and all those all those guys, and he had never kind of had that self promotional bone in his body. I don't think it's it's bad to self promote and and tell stories, but both Freddie and I were figuring it out, and we personally fell in love with the idea of documenting a first ascent that we didn't even know we could make it across and going for broke, trying to get this helicopter to come in. We had found some pilot from Florida who had never even seen the mountains before. I didn't know he was going to find us. And we put Paul Roderick from TAT in the plane with him as uh, quote unquote aerial DP, director of photography. And we were on the climb suffering, like not knowing if we were going to make it. Um, we had the, you know, the scene from Swiss Machine and Uh, In our minds from the Sender Films thing with uh, Uli Steck, like running across the top of the Eiger, we're like, if we can get a shot like that, like that's not posed. And on an actual first ascent, this feels like we're contributing to the history of like how these things are documented. And that's kind of why we included it. And at the time, we didn't know how closely it tied to Washburn, but it ended up being, yeah, it's kind of the perfect element um as the film comes together and, and you're seeing some of those sh- those shots of the split tail f- plane flying over the mountain and we were we didn't even know they had gotten any footage at that that point um we were just it was a little tiny fleeting moment on the climb um we we're like oh the clouds kind of parted i mean they might have gotten something but we're going to keep climbing yeah a little we know we'd be like toiling for 10 years trying to digitize Washburn's library to like have some complicated woven narrative (laughs) of a of a monster film that's uh yeah it's honestly it's it's uh it's tricky to tricky to talk about and promote it's not easy film that has like this one clear thing you can tell people to go watch like Alex is gonna go free solo Al Cap and he's gonna live or he's gonna die this thing's you could probably watch it 10 times and get different things out of it but
1: Yeah. So that's, that's um, really interesting because I I think that's exactly right. There's so many storylines in this film. I mean, there's the tooth traverse there's Bradford Washburn's story and just seeing like, you know, Micah Dash's you know, face like on the screen, like that kind of strangely brought tears to my eyes. Like just having, you see someone who you haven't thought of in so long and there they are in the, you know, on the screen again. Um, And it's a really rich story. I mean, I think that's just what I kept the word that came to mind. I'd be interested to hear your uh, perspective, Freddie, as a writer on how you uh, balanced or thought about integrating all of these disparate stories and kind of making them into this cohesive narrative.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Big challenge. I mean, it's like Renan, it's kind of hard for me to even put words, you know, put words to it. um, But. For me, it was kind of like, and this is incredibly nerdy to say, but coming of age as an archival researcher, I literally got so obsessed with Brad Washburn, who was this super successful, I I call him the kind of a real-life Indiana Jones character, because he had a super successful professional life where he put on a, a suit and jacket and... You know, was the director of the Boston Museum of Science, which was, you know, a, a premier scientific institution uh, under his leadership. And then on the weekends, he'd put on his fedora hat and go off and fly around in mountains and, you know, hang out the door taking pictures and making maps and doing first ascents, doing so much cool stuff. And he left these deposits of archives Scattered all over the country, um, Boston and BU. Uh, uh, there's a, a you know a lot of his papers. The American Alpine Club Library has a lot of his papers. Um, University of Alaska Fairbanks has a huge cache. So I spent several years just going around and looking at all that material, and um, ultimately, hopefully, this is a film where the history isn't just window dressing to, to, you know, make an adventure narrative a little more meaningful. And that happens, you know, frequently uh, there's, you know, an expedition that's like a, you know, in the footsteps of so-and-so or, or whatever. And that's definitely very much a, a sub-genre of adventure storytelling. And I really approach this as like, I want this to be like Ken Burns-esque nerdy documentary you know, biopic about this guy and have the first ascent of us be window dressing for Brad's story. And that was a real creative tension that, like, took us many years to resolve. Is it is it, like, 70% Brad and 30% us? I mean, that's what I was saying at one point. And, you know, Renan thought I was crazy. And, uh... <laughs> not entirely, uh, but anyway, so... I'm I'm really happy at where it ended. Uh, we left a lot of good stuff out and I know that's, I think that's kind of a one tell of like a good creative process is if there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, stuff left on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Ultimately uh, I should also give shout outs to our two editors who worked on the project to basically writing with their keystrokes. Uh, Chad Irvine, who, who is my co-writer and, and was awesome and, finishing the project and then uh, Aaron Barnett who got us started and cut like a lot of the original scenes about, about us and Washburn.
0: And that really speaks to what I think you were talking about Renan too, is like trying to figure out what the, the various threads of the film are. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I know all of you guys personally. Um, I know Zach personally. Um, I, I, I knew Micah personally. So it's like I had all this very much personal stuff, that, that was going into the film as I was watching it. And um, and I was like, I don't know, I was like really paying close attention to you guys' relationship, I think, because of that. What about that relationship? What were you guys really concerned about in terms of portraying in the relationship between the three climbers?
2: I think there's a big sub-thread there that you picked up on, knowing, knowing the characters so well. And I think... We wanted to to show like kind of the the true soul of climbing, and for a while we really wanted to make Zach the the overall hero of the film and and just focus on him because we felt like he was he was the strongest character and we and every time we listened to ourselves talk, we just felt like professional athletes toting the line, saying the same shit that we always say, and every time Zach talked, it came out of this place of Of deep angst and passion and we're like that's what we want that's what that's the soul of climbing we should lean into that and this project's been sort of cursed from the beginning another reason why it didn't come out is because even though you know freddie and i are professional athletes we climbed for different brands and we were this forbidden partnership and no brand would really sponsor the film fully to completion hopefully i don't get in trouble for saying that but It's just kind of the reality of it and you can kind of see, yeah, like the pros and the cons and the pitfalls of like how this plays out over a generation between this, these tight friends and, and communities. And one of the the big ironies of the, of the film is that you see the scenes when I'm, you know, I got the crane out and I'm filming Zach screwing in Christmas lights on my rental house in, in Boulder, Colorado and then 10 years later we're toiling still like in debt trying to trying to get the film to come out and meanwhile Zach's got this wildly successful christmas light business that he's like <laughs> basically retiring on um and super super happy like following his own path in the mountains that doesn't necessarily depend on these low percentage alpine climbs anymore so yeah i think i think uh young climbers trying to find their way in the industry as storytellers can pick up on that thread throughout the movie and, and take something away from themselves for themselves. Yeah, you know,
1: what you just said, Renan, is really super interesting. You know, I, I just what came to mind is some of the criticisms that I've heard over the um, in the wake of the really tragic death of David Lama and Hans-Jörg Gauer and Jess Roskali, where people were sort of trying to squeeze that tragedy into this framing of, you know, they're they're all on the North Face team and, like, they feel obligated to do risky things together in the mountains. And it's a really incoherent idea on a number of levels, one of which is that um, David and uh, Hans-Jörg were good friends who had climbed in the mountains when they were not on the same, you know, sponsored team. But I'd love to just – I think – A lot of our listeners would probably be really interested to know just have like an honest like look into the mind of um you know of a a sponsored athlete of of your caliber both of you and how um how you present yourself in films and how you talk about roots and climbing and you know you kind of alluded to the cliches that you know you you often hear over and over renan how conscious are you of that does that something that you feel like you just you feel like you need to do to sort of fit in, or is it direct, you know, like handed down from on high? Or what's the, why do you think that is, that there is, you could say that there is a cliched kind of professional athlete way of talking about, you know, risk in the mountains, so to speak?
2: Yeah, I I don't know what it is, um, but we, we battled it pretty hard on this. I think in some ways we knew we weren't going to make as, monetarily as successful of a film but really we stuck to our guns and and freddie is such a staunch new Hampshirean who doesn't want to overplay his hand and come out too too pompous or or like you know say that the two was like the greatest climb ever because you know it wasn't like in terms of like cutting edge alpinism it's It's not the craziest thing ever we just thought it was meaningful to us because of of Washburn and overall, we wanted to create a film that was a drop in the bucket of answering the question of of why you do these things and it's the unanswerable question when you go into the outside world and they ask you if you've climbed Everest if you're a professional climber and you get into all those same kind of conversations and we could have easily played up the, the the suffering and dropped in even more of those cliches. But I, I think we we tried to, to more display the, the joy of climbing and then represent the landscape, the visual landscape of Alaska. And I think most people are going to watch the film and be like, oh, those are kind of cool drone shots, but you can't fly drones in Denali National Park. And a lot of this footage is like, really like the library of documenting the the park like it's never been documented from the air with helicopters in coordination with the park service access that we only got because they were also so in love with Washburn and the idea of of tying it back to his legacy so I think there's a lot of pressure as an athlete and as you guys know you guys probably interview a lot of athletes and there are rare cases like I'm sure when you talk to like tommy and alex that's why they're so successful is they just they just be themselves and and it's hard to really break them um in terms of uh yeah,
1: he, there's also <laughs> a few people who can free solo el cap too oh we've another, tried yeah we have success. tried
2: <laughs> but uh yeah it's like
1: just be yourself yeah. and you too can free solo Cap. <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> but, yeah and, and I, all of the rest of us are just like trying to like have something that's that's unique and different and if and as, normally if we find something, it tends to become this broken record, the story that we tell over and over again yeah it's it's just a tricky thing in this industry, not to say that it's a it's a bad thing, but it was something that we just wanted to go more towards as much as we could get people in the door with a bit of the adventure and a bit of that stuff, but then give them a bit more like history lesson that that Freddie was really driving for with all of that research and and everything else
3: yeah and i just uh would add to andrew's question the crux of being the sponsored athlete or you know professional climber adventurer uh if you will is that it's really two jobs there's the adventurer climber part and there's the communication storyteller part and when first of all I, I also want to say that i'm no longer really a sponsored climber uh, so so that uh, that's another thing we can talk about so when climbers have to get up in front of an audience and speak you know you can have people who are exceptionally gifted with ice axes and crampons in their hands but you know they still sound kind of cliched and not that interesting when they're asked to speak about it. And it's like, you know, watch mainstream sports, you know, and and that's why maybe their sports media does have a role, you know, journalists, writers, podcasters, because most people who are doing rad things in the mountains, um, you know, I mean, I don't know, a lot of, a lot are great storytellers. So I shouldn't say that, but, but I think, I think there's an expectation that, a great climber is also going to be a great storyteller. And a lot of times that, that makes for some interesting
1: turbulence. Just to wrap that up, um, if I may, I mean, I guess just an observation is, you know, this was like such a new identity for you at the time. And I think that's why that kind of came up as like a relevant theme in this film is just trying to struggle with, you know, wrestling, wearing all of these different hats and how to do it authentically. So I think it's an interesting look into you, you know, uh, yourselves from 10 years ago and, and, and now, and, and totally. it's very interesting to see your trajectory over the course of that time to where you are now, which yeah, it seems to have kind of reconciled those tensions.
0: Well, yeah. And it's fascinating too, because, you know, Andrew and I recently did a podcast where we talked about how it was basically, um, impossible to sell out because, everything is acceptable now or you can't get shit for like taking money from Ford or whoever, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, it's interesting, again, my own perspective of how you guys were, I mean, in the early aughts, late nineties, early aughts, like that was a thing that was on everybody's mind. And, and, you know, you had a Johnny cop and, and, um, you know, and Micah on this one end of, you know, this foot in this old world where you just climb for yourself and you don't, and you know, and, and it's fascinating because that era that you guys were doing this, this climb in this film was really a transitional period where a lot of these things were kind of becoming acceptable and this new path as a professional was, was being forged, um, in a way that it had never really been done before. Again, just a comment of my own knowledge of that scene, you know, and like those, those shots of you Renan out in the desert with that freaking uh, what was that film called? The, the the Return crack climbing one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it was like, you were just this whole different person then. And it's just fascinating to to have watched you as a professional change over the years too. But to change the subject though, uh, with Washburn, you know, it's pretty clear his influence on you, Renan, you know, and I, and in some ways, you know, you've become one of the preeminent, you know, photographers and cinematographers of sort of this aerial big mountain, filming i mean i i you know i don't know if you feel that way but i think you're a go-to name and and some of the stuff that you've created on that level so that influence is super obvious can i ask you guys what his influence on you as climbers um has been because one of the things that i find fascinating in the film is of course i've seen the the giant black and whites and how incredible all that was but i had no idea what kind of badass he was as a climber and maybe his roots weren't super technical compared to modern alpinism, but his level of adventure and commitment. And I think you kind of highlighted that on the Lucania climb, just what kind of level of commitment that he, he had. And um, so, yeah, talk a little bit about, you know, as you were inspired by him artistically, what about him as a climber?
3: Brad was, was really good at figuring out how to get to the top of, big, glaciated peaks in Alaska. And he, I I think, I mean, he really invented the style of climbing that's still being done on Denali and the peaks around Denali and and across Alaska and and in the Yukon uh, using ski plane aviation. That Lucania climb was the first airplane-supported climb in Alaska. And, you know, to this day, we're still going up there and, you know, hiring a, a bush pilot to, to get us where we want to go. And and also to kind of provide you with all sorts of intelligence and all the other logistics you need. So um, I, I think that and the fact that he never lost a partner, never even had a serious, like, accident that needed an evac on any of his trips is really impressive. And then the other thing that's fun to think about is, this professional climbing, I mean, that we're talking about, he was a professional climber in his day. I mean, he was pitching National Geographic for annual trips. And as a matter of fact, the Lucania climb, he pitched to National Geographic and they turned him down. And I came across the letter that Grovesner, the director of National Geographic, wrote to Brad. and He said, you seemed a little tired. We want you to take a good break this summer and, and we'll have you you know, involved with National Geographic again soon. And Brad went off and did Lucania and then went to New York and sold the, uh, the, the images and the story to Life Magazine and gave the middle finger to NG. So I love finding that kind of stuff because I do think there's a, a lot more continuities in history, then people first realize it's always like, oh, everything's changed. It was different back then, but now it's changed and it's never going to be the same. And as a matter of fact, yeah, that's that's often true in history, but often it's a lot similar back then you know, to what's happening today than you realize. And there's a lot of lessons that can be gathered from that.
2: Yeah. I mean, the Andres and Clint, who just did the first ascent of Golgotha in Alaska. Andres lives down the road here. And just listening to his trials and tribulations, it was all about finding the right pilot that was gonna, gonna fly him in there. There's still endless first ascents in Alaska, and Washburn is has like still inspiring those kind of climbs, and it it's all part of the same fabric. And that's, what's so cool about the climbing community in general is you often get to interact with, with your heroes and the generations really aren't too far apart and it all, it all ties together. And that was, uh, yeah, it was like a really big realization that we had, especially getting in deeper and deeper into all the climbs that he had done and with the way that he incorporated his family and his, his partner into, into his climbs with Barbara which is something that I try to do with Taylor and trying to like do expeditions together. A big thing that we're excited about too is also it tells the story of David Roberts a bit, um, who recently passed away. And David Roberts was one of the most influential climbers and, and writers of our time. And also Washburn mentored him. And yeah, I just hope people get to to check out the film to see some of David's story and just how smart and articulate and passionate he was to, to his, his dying days as well.
3: Yeah. David Roberts spoke so eloquently. You could see how like, you know, in the last 15 years of his life, he averaged like a book a year, like a book every 18 months. He is incredibly productive as a writer and uh, you could see why interviewing him. He spoke like, off the cuff in like perfectly phrased, you know, intelligent King's English. And at one point in the editing process, our editors like, okay, no more David can be in the film. Like he's not the main character. And he actually like forbade us from, from using his voice because he, he explained like everything in our one three hour interview with him. So David was a huge influence on us.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed um, seeing him just I, I think a lot of people probably don't younger people probably don't know who he is, but just prodigious, amazing writer. If you've read Alex Honnold's book, he was the uh, the author, co-author with Alex on on his book. So among dozens of others. Uh, so, yeah, that was a that was a real treat to see him in the film.
3: And he did have a chance to see a, a nearly locked cut of the picture, too which was a couple of years
0: ago, which was cool. Some of this film or a lot of it is archival footage. It's also in a sense, I mean, your own footage was archival because you had filmed it, you know, just loads of it, and loads of it. And then you have to go back and decide how does this all fit into this, this other narrative, which I think is a pretty common experience. And you can set me straight if it's not Renan of, of making a lot of these films, it's like you go, you do the climb, you have the camera out as much as you can. You're thinking about, well, I, I got to make sure and get these shots and that shots. But in the end, I I, I go back and look at what I have. And is this going to make it a, a a narrative, you know? Um, but there was a an interesting thing. And I was wondering if you guys had done this kind of thing before, is that you actually have some, you know, these recreations in this film, um, which sort of, in a way, moved it into like a different category of filmmaking for your dirtbag climber, you know, where you you have these like recreations of Washburn. Um, So tell me about who influenced that idea and uh, what it was like to move into like that kind of cinema in a lot of ways. I think that was probably a bigger thing than, than maybe you guys. Yeah. I mean, even those are like
2: super old now (laughs) for us, but, um, but yeah, I think, I mean, it's the narrative style of filmmaking kind of, we, we realized that we kind of needed something like that um, as we were, continuing to make the film and we're like, how are people going to realize just how crazy it was for Washburn to hang out of the open door of an airplane with some like hemp rope? And how are we going to have something that's powerful enough to make people realize it? We didn't think of it necessarily as a, as a recreation, but that it and the way that it all came together was, was extremely scrappy. We couldn't find like the, the rope. Uh, Taylor was very influential in in setting up that shoot. She found like the cat's cradle rope that holds Ross Washburn in the door. The only place we could find it was from Kink.com. So there's like some pa- some like, funny packages showing up on the door, and then the difficulties of finding a split-tailed airplane that you can take the door off and just go flying over the biggest mountain range on the world without having the pilot lose his license. Oh, we went through a few different pilots, but yeah, that's, uh, I guess I'm not supposed to talk about, but we did end up finding like, she found like a a pilot. She was like at the river in Talkeetna just, you know, it's where you go and have a beer at the end of the day. And we ended up finding a pilot last minute when we thought it was all going to, going to go wrong and sourced leather flight suits on, on eBay. It was, it was very budget. And at one point we wanted to do more of those, especially for Lucania, but of course it's it's super expensive. And that was a, I'm glad you, you brought it up though. It was a, it was a fun, fun thing for us to do at the time. And yeah, we really had a lot of fun shooting that stuff like air to air. We had a helicopter shooting the antique aircraft with actors dressed up in flight suits, hanging out open doors of airplanes over the mountains. <laughs> Just felt pretty wild at the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I bet. I mean, you mentioned like it being on a shoestring budget, but that that is still this thing that like again moves a movie into sort of big time in terms of just even adding that kind of footage on a shoestring budget is a big probably a big deal for a you know, what again what we consider a climbing film. Um
3: I mean that was that was what really got us going on on making this movie was we went up to Talkeetna the year after we had done the Tooth Traverse. And we did a a trip with Alex, I think. But we also just hung out in Talkeetna for two weeks and just did, like, base camp filmmaking. And, you know, would be running around Talkeetna, trying to set up interviews with random climbers who were passing through. We had a partnership with the Park Service. So we were shooting with their helicopter a little bit and co-sharing the footage. And so we had this little aerial unit. And um, it was at a time in in Renan's partnership that there were his partners, Tim and Anson, came up to help us. And they definitely get credit, too, for, for lending their creative powers. And there just was a fun alchemy. Now it's, it's, this is all so standard, but back then it was like, I mean, Free Solo definitely was a long way off. Meru had maybe just come out and, but maybe not. So for me, it was really fun because, you know, I'm more of a writer, but watching Renan kind of develop as a filmmaker, you know, has definitely been a special, special treat and, and uh, privilege of mine along the way.
0: So where did you get the title for the film Sanctity of Space?
3: Sanctity of Space, it's from a poem by John McGee, who was a RAF pilot, died in the Battle of Britain. I think he was only 19 years old. It's a poem that most climbers have never heard of. It's super famous in the aviation world. This is like The Hymn of Pilots the World Over. And it was a little poem he wrote about flying airplanes uh, that he sent in a letter to his parents. And it was Brad Washburn's favorite poem. And it just so happened that he was doing a film project with a dear friend of ours, Tom Pollard, late in life. Tom was a young filmmaker, just like Renahan and I were uh, a decade or two later, and kind of came under Brad's mentorship. And it was Tom's dream to make a doc about Brad. And as part of that, he got Brad into a sound studio and recorded him reading that poem. Many years passed that project kind of went, went stale for Tom. Uh, We came along and and I know him from the New Hampshire climbing community. And, you know, eventually he, he just said, Hey, take all this stuff from my old Brad project if you want to use it. So that's, that's how the poem got to be in the movie.
1: My uh, one critique of this film was that I watched it on my iPad and it really needs to be seen on the big screen because the the footage, I, I know you're kind of joking Renan about, you know, this was predated drones and, um, you know, the aerials that we've kind of have become a dime a dozen in some sense, but the footage is actually, I think stands up and is, is really spectacular. Um, and so just on the level of, you know, seeing beautiful shots of the mountains and that are really inspiring. On that level alone, this film is successful, and I think a lot of people who probably aren't even climbers are going to enjoy it for that reason. And it also ties into, you know, it's kind of the the continuation of what Bradford started, Brad Washburn started, with uh, just, you know, seeing the mountains from the sky and, and bringing that perspective in and this tiny figure in the landscape to give you scale. And uh, so I just wanted to flag that. On that level alone, this is like just a really stunning thing to watch. So I hope I would encourage people to go see it in the theaters if that's if that's possible.
2: Yeah, there's there's a few screenings um, this week still. Um, I'll be up in Salt Lake um, later this week. Uh, I think Friday's going to Alaska. It's going to it's going to play at the Beartooth Theater in Anchorage, which is big hometown crowd and got like a fundraiser screening in Talkeetna for the volunteer Rescue on Denali. And I think it's pretty limited theatrical, but yeah, definitely the big screen thing, which after COVID is is a lot harder.
3: We're scheduled to be in about 30 theaters right now. Um, Primarily uh, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, Phoenix, so, if you live in any of those major uh, kind of Rocky Mountain Western cities, Portland, Oregon, too, uh, you know, you might have the opportunity to see it. So, you can get all the details on Show Times at our social media, uh, Sanctity of Space on Instagram and Facebook. And, and there's links to, to the film's landing page at our distributor.
0: If you've just finished your first helping of the runout, and like a wayfish 19th century street urchin, you want some more, please, well, you little larcenous rascal, you're in luck. Because if you go to patreon.com runoutpodcast and become a rope gun, you will be entitled to copious bonus gruel like our recent dissection of the famous aid climbing rant by yours truly. An early YouTube video, the aid climbing rant may have been one of the first digital climbing memes. And what I realized is that these stories of of these pitches and these roots and stuff, like I went up there looking for them, and they didn't exist like th- there is not an entire pitch of hooking like you hear about it when you're sitting in the meadow and it's like it it that's not that does not exist. it's fake. and so there was so much like bullshit around it that everyone just assumed was true, but no one could actually you know point to and and in a way my my progression across el cap was trying to kind of like okay well let me go find that let me go find this like the heinous this most gnarliest thing ever and um i just kind of like climbed them all and i was like okay well those weren't that bad and that was like where it came from to help us out go to patreon.com slash Runout podcast and become a rope gun today On today's final bit, we bring you a reading from Jonathan Howland, the author of a new vibrant climbing novel called Native Air. Native Air is available from Green Writers Press and anywhere you get your books.
4: Hi, Jonathan Howland here, reading from Native Air. Little context on this section, it's from part one of the novel. Pete and Joe are preparing for their later-in-the-summer attempt at at a first ascent of Mount Moriah, the northeast face direct in the Sierra. And so this spring of 1989, as they have in previous springs, visit a bunch of other cragging areas to get fit for the coming climbing season. This scene is in the lightning bolt cracks on uh, one of the six shooters in Utah, and Joe has just recently learned that he didn't get into any of the seminaries to which he applied. We opted next for Indian Creek instead of heading back to the valley. Pete liked the heat, and I liked the way the heat vacated the campgrounds and cliffs of climbers. We went at it every day, repeating favorites, often taking laps on hard pitches. To mix things up, we'd do a multi-pitch on a tower, Jaw Man on Sister Superior, Court Ingalls on Castleton, the brilliant Fine Jade. On one of these, North six-shooter, I was inching through the fifth and last pitch, a squeeze chimney, when Pete hollered up from the belay, eighty feet below, a question that would echo in my mind for the next twenty years, and always in his voice. "'Why, minister?' "'What?' I tried to say. But winded, and hemmed in the chimney, my voice died. Then Pete again. "'Why help anybody?' he shouted. "'Or anybody else, I mean.' I had been sweating and grunting, my gear clanging about, but now I burrowed in and relaxed fully into the dark recess. My breathing returned to normal, and through the shadows I could see Pete below, his face sunlit, his hair blowing in the warm wind. He played with the slings on the anchor, adjusting his position restlessly. He looked around the desert over his shoulder. A few minutes later, he called up. "'That's right, Joe!' Just hang tight there till you figure it out. I rested my face on the cool sandstone, my heartbeat slowing, my position secure as a chalkstone, though twenty feet below the chimney opened up upon several hundred feet of air. I'd been thinking of little else for months, not with any great consternation, but constantly, and I thought I knew the answer. In climbing I had a bridge between proximates and ultimates, the knife-edged ridge and the sky, the hollow, expanding flake to which you commit your weight and the big vacancies at your back. The glimpse of tremendousness you get from a sequence that works only on account of some miraculous braid of strength, technique, and commitment. The exposure we climbed into, it was palpable and solvable. The other, the cosmic kind, was teasing, opaque, and for distractible young men of my type, avoidable. I wasn't pursuing the ministry to help someone else. It was to help myself, or maybe to be helped by others who could get to these edges without ropes and equipment. Then I noticed Pete coiling the slack end of the rope. He removed his shirt, rolled the rope into two neat halves, and placed it over his back like a knapsack, the shirt underneath for padding. He was detaching himself from the anchors, preparing to simul climb, a flat, dangerous technique, wherein a fall by either climber is arrested, if arrested by whatever gear lay between the two. We did this often, to move with dispatch on easy terrain, but never on anything so technical and exposed as this. The first move off the belay is delicate. He smeared to the left side of the stance with care, marking his toes, then extended through two tricky solution pockets to reach past the first hard move and gain the bottom of the forty-foot finger crack that led to the maw of the chimney in which I was lodged. The first part of the crack was thin hands and more or less secure, and with his end of the rope running through his belay device, Pete could get good feet to retie his knot every ten feet or so for additional measure of safety. But then the crack narrowed. Several years before, on our first attempt here, we had both been spit out of this section, and more than once. The size, larger than fingers, smaller than hands, requires tricky and painful arrangements of thumbs and forefingers, precise placement of toes and more than a little staying power. When you come off, you don't fall so much as spring out from the cliff. By the time we got into the chimney, we were spent, scared, and bleeding, and if the chimney was more secure, it still felt frighteningly slippery. But now Pete climbed deliberately and with seeming ease, long extensions between finger locks, attentive in his eyes but without strain. He hiked one foot nearly to his waist, levered off a jam to establish the next, then paused to make small, unhurried adjustments before waiting the new hold. He stopped at each of the several cams I'd placed, first eyeing the gear, then removing it without fidget or fret, but rather like a mechanic disassembling some intricate part of an engine. In just a few minutes, there were only two pieces between us, and no features near or above me in which to place more. If he climbed into the chimney, we'd be roped together but entirely unprotected. "'Figure it out,' Pete said. He fiddled with the second-to-last piece, his face now in the shadows. The cam had walked further into the crack, and with half the rope on his back and the rest hanging on a long coil from a strand between his legs, he had to scrunch up to establish both of his feet, kicking aside the taut strand and leaving the lower coil to sway in the sun below.' With a deep fist jam, he freed up the other hand entirely, and then, with a sigh, pulled the cam free and clipped it to his harness. Only one more piece of hardware lay between us, a number four on a long sling in an adjacent arcing crack near the base of the chimney. It's okay, Pete said. I can help. He reached down as if to retie the knot under his belay device, but instead untied the half hitch there pulled up the dangling coil, and strung it with a sling alongside two loops from his shoulders so that the entire rope could hang beneath him as he entered the chimney. The next move from the top of the wide crack to the bottom of the chimney was the crux of the upper third of the pitch, an awkward, wild transition. Pete left the last cam in as long as possible, but he'd have to clean it before he was fully established in the chimney. Now he breathed audibly again, raising himself on the last of the good foot jams and building a ladder of arm bars to raise his back and butt into the opening. Finally, he brought his outer right knee up, but he could get it only so high. His foot dangled in the air. He paused. He seemed scared, and I wasn't anywhere near secure enough to hold us both if he slipped out. I figured he was about to ask whether I could make any placements from my position or even a little higher, but then he reached back and beneath him and with his right hand, blindly found the sling and removed the number four. This he let fly, the cam swinging down to the top of the coil in the sun. Now with his right knee quite a lot higher than his waist, his thigh alone was doing the work of maintaining this position. Then his butt slipped a little. Pete! I called, my voice cracking. What? he practically whispered. He placed both palms against the wall in front of him, raised his leg into the chimney, and with a single smooth gesture stood firmly inside, just a body length below me. After catching his breath, he made a few warming, undulating moves until he was directly beside me. I had hunkered into a deeper recess, cams and a set of nuts dangling from my now pointless harness. Pete sat in the wider, outer section. "'laden with the rest of our gear and dragging ten pounds of rope, "'glistening with sweat and yet entirely relaxed. "'It's okay,' he said. "'I can help you.' "'Perfectly calm, like we were fixing a tire. "'What do you mean? "'I mean, let's do this together. "'Do what?' he looked down. "'He seemed to be enjoying this vantage of the formerly treacherous section "'he'd essentially soloed "'and the several hundred feet of crimson sandstone to the desert flow below. "'This,' he said, "'Come here.' "'Come there?' "'Yes, right here.' He moved a few inches farther out, vacating the wider and more comfortable position for me. "'What do you have in mind?' I said. "'Slide in here,' he indicated with his head, chest to chest. I did as directed, moving my gear to the side and climbing over his knees one by one. In a moment we were so firmly locked in place that if one of us took a full breath, the other couldn't breathe at all. "'Easy,' Pete said.' take turns. He led with a deep exhale his mouth beside my ear. Now you. He smelled like the desert. I breathed in, and then we reversed, tentatively at first, but after a few halting tries we relaxed, grew synchronous, and carried on like this, as if in guided meditation. Pete rested his chin on my shoulder. I let my arms fall to my side. The muscles at my shoulders tingled and twitched, I hadn't been aware I was using them all this time. We became easy, maintaining even pressure at the breast and falling into a rhythm, one animal, two sets of lungs. "'But they'll never find us here,' I said. "'Sure they will, in time. Our bleached remains, our interlocking rib cages, a ladder of bones for subsequent parties. My legs were above Pete's, the bottoms of my thighs resting on top of his. "'Too much?' I said." "'It's lovely.' "'He pulled the dangling rope and dropped it over my lap. "'Oh, God,' he said. "'So good. I'll bet.' "'Now,' he said, "'let's scoot.' "'Scoot? Mosey, then.' "'I raised myself a fraction of an inch. "'You good?' "'No. I mean, together.' "'Chest to chest we were stuck, if stable, "'but with incremental adjustments we found "'we could rise through the chimney more or less as we might alone, "'but for our entangled limbs.' Occasionally, one or the other of us had to move a palm, knee, or elbow to give the other a better purchase. The rope lay heavily across my lap. I marveled Pete had climbed the finger crack with the additional load. Some ten feet beneath the flat summit, I paused. The comfortable size I'd grown used to pinched down for the final section to either a flaring squeeze with a fist-sized crack in the back or a round edge, still larger chimney closer to the face of the cliff. The inner path was more secure but far harder, the outer fairly easy but terribly exposed. With your last gear forty feet below you, it's quite spicy. With no gear, it's the sort of thing you bring to mind later only to clean your bowels. "'How about the exit?' I said. He looked up, side by side. "'Fuck you. One in, one out. Which do you want?' He had taken the top strand from the coil at my waist." Tied a figure eight and clipped it to the belay loop on my harness to put a couple of body lengths of rope between us. Inside guy is the anchor. I felt a splash of sweat on my palms and face. Give me the number four, I said. For what? To fix? He was right. Even when finishing this pitch in regular style, it's god-awful trying to clean a cam from the back of the flare. I'll push it along, I said. If I can, I'll wrap off to get it. I'm not doing this part naked. Jesus, Joe. After all this, he sighed and started up, the number four dangling from the other side of his harness and well out of my reach. I wedged in further to get a fist in the grainy, rarely visited back of the crack. I locked a knee bar beneath me and was fidgeting to gain a still firmer stance when I heard Pete directly above me. He was on top. Let me pull up some rope, Joe. I felt a flash of gratitude. But my burrowing had left me gripped and entangled, my head pinched on either side by the narrow slot. I couldn't look down without leaning out, and leaning out I felt I might catapult out from the chimney. Pete tugged lightly on the rope until at last it lasted, unburied the knot at my waist. You're on belay, Joe. And then I rose, easily and without thought, fist jammed, chicken wing, knee bar and mantle, shortly sitting on the smooth summit with one leg dangling in the hole from which we'd just emerged. A blood-red sun bathed the western horizon. I removed my gear and untied. It's all right, Pete said. Even Siamese twins have to emerge one at a time. He stood against the sun, still shirtless, re-racking and taking in the desert vista. He had removed his shoes. So what's your point, I said. They don't need me? Who? I don't know. The assembled, the seekers and sojourners. You mean the sinners? Sure. Them too. He was untangling the rope into two clean loops around his shoulders. We'd have to find the anchors on the far edge and make several rappels down the smooth west face. Sin, I said. What is that? Bad style? And litter, he said. And taking too long. Taking more than you need. But these are the easy kind. Sins of a lesser sort. You professionals have to tend to the real kind. Like? Like bailing. Pete lay down on his back, his head resting on the coiled rope. You wouldn't be able to help anybody with that simply by doing some reading and getting a little certificate. You'd have to know it firsthand. What's his name? The doubter? Thomas. Yeah, that guy. And those folks in AA, what do you call them, sponsors? They're credible, because they've been there. They've touched the wounds, I said. Yes, he said. And me, because I'm leaving. Pete sat up as if to say something, then he gathered the two loops at his feet and walked to the far side of the summit to find the anchors for the rappel. Or was trying to leave, I said, but he couldn't hear me now. I don't know if he cared one way or another about my lack of options. I had already betrayed him by trying to have some. In a week we were back in Bishop, in two rested and reorganized, and in three mostly finished with a new route on an unnamed arete east of Junction Peak, a feature I had pointed out several years earlier during one of our many back-and-forths across the crest to resupply a project near Clarence King. We had been resting near the pass, Pete cutting salami, and I recall exactly what he said when I had directed his attention to the striking line, a steep, arching ridge that bends around a golden amphitheater to gain the three-headed summit. Sure, he said, jot that down for later, for when we're old and arthritic. I was angry in the moment, but had long ago forgotten about the route. When Pete suggested we start the Sierra season there, I was about as uninterested as he had been. I was feeling good, eager to push it, and this was less technical than old-school adventure mountaineering, the sort of thing I ordinarily like. But at least once upon a time, it had been my idea. So we set aside a week and change to do it, and the route, late wisdom, little gear, went so smooth and fast we were back in the pinions in mid-June, racing up to Pine Creek in the mornings just to stay sharp. I ran for an hour around sunset, sometimes ending up in town where Pete would meet me for Miguel's or Aaron's. During the middle of the day, we lay around camp, seeking shade and avoiding each other. The mountains loomed, framed by towering thunderheads in the afternoon, but the pinions were bathed in sunshine, a hot wind blowing from the south. Pete was strangely unansy. He'd hold a headstand for 15 minutes in the shade of the trailer. He looked over maps and guidebooks and the sketches he made in October, these in a notebook that had its own place on a shelf in the trailer like a family Bible. Having long since charted and memorized everything there was to glean about Mariah, it wasn't information he was assembling. It was obsession and psych. One evening, he sat outside on a milk crate, naked but for shorts, filing his fingertips and the edges of his toes with an emery board. Tell me, Joe... He said, looking off, where the bright light of the falling sun bounced off the peaks. What is it that's there, you know, on the other side? Is it redemption? Is it diffusion? Comfort? Is that all it is? Comfort? I, too, was mostly naked, sitting at the chess table nearby, studying my next move. We had left a game with only a handful of pieces on the board and a perfectly uncertain outcome. Whatever it is, he said, it's not this, right? Isn't that the whole point? It's not this? No, I said, this is paradise, trying to head him off. No, for real, it's not what we have here. Alive, aliveness, whatever you want to call it. Nothing to squander, nothing to protect, just the work and pleasure of keeping the coals burning. He was sawing at his calluses again. Moving a night here, I said, smiling at his relentlessness. I'd begun to accept the prospect seminary would not happen, and for the first time in a long while, I felt a stirring. It was good, and maybe good enough, all of it. I was loved, I was in a beautiful place, a kind of home, and my feelings for Pete weren't crowded with the usual complications. Eyes locked on the board, I felt misty and grateful. I could feel him studying me. Later, we completed the game by headlamp, and even as he came in for the kill, I was happy as I've ever been.
1: You've just finished another episode of the Runout podcast. I'm Andrew Bichirat and you can reach me at Andrew at
0: runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Kalous. And you can reach me at Andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true.
1: We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No,
0: no. no it's no, no. it's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at Patreon slash runoutpodcast.com, no, po- dot .com slash runoutpodcast, something like that. Give us some money.